Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome once again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this episode, I ask Rick Wakeman to tell me the five things from his life he would like to preserve in a time capsule, four things he loves, and one thing he loathes. Rick is a pianist, songwriter, author, producer, and presenter. He was a member of the band The Straubs, and has been a member of the prog rock band, yes, since 1971. He's played piano with Al Stewart, T-Rex, notably on Get It On, with Elton John, and with Cat Stevens on Morning Has Broken. He's also played keyboards on a number of David Bowie albums, such as Space Oddity, Ziggy Stardust of the Spiders from Mars, and Hunky Dory, including the hits Changes, Oh You Pretty Things, and, most memorably, the number three hit, Life on Mars. Yes, it only got to number three. <laughs> He's made over 90 solo albums, but is perhaps most famous for his extraordinary concept albums, The Six Wives of Henry VIII, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, and The Myths and Legends of King Arthur. He was one of the grumpy old men on television and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017. In fact, if I listed everything he's done, we'd never actually get to hear him. So let's do that now, in Rick Wakeman's episode of My Time Capsule. Hope you enjoy it. The first thing I would want to take with me would be my 1957 Ford Anglia 100E. I bought it in 1966, age 17, after just passing my test. In fact, I bought it before I passed my test. And everybody was after their first car. And the great thing was this is pre-MOT days, no MOTs. And, and all the lads in our local area, they bought their cars from one guy. Uh, and his place was called UC Slim. Uh, UC Slim Motors, which was in Sudbury Town, <laughs> uh, just up from the railway station. And everybody went to, to UC Slim uh, because uh, 
he would sort you out. Uh, it was just wrecks everywhere, but it, you, you weren't told him what you'd got. So I had a grand total of £30, which wow. I had saved up. So I went down to see UC Slim. So I went in there and he said, so your first car, son, is it? And I said, that, yes, yes, Mr. Slim. And he said, okay, and how much have we got? And I said, £30. And he said, is that to include tax and insurance? And I said, yes, Mr. Slim. <laughs> he said, okay. He said, I think we can sort you out here. And he took me out the back and there was this uh, rust-ridden 100 E Anglia. And I said, I thought, this is just wonderful. And it, it had been blue at one time. <laughs> but it was now a mixture of rust and filler <laughs> and he opened the door and the thing that I remember was in the back because it was two door he puts it there was no floor the floor rotted it had gone completely <laughs> but as I say it's before the days of and it doesn't matter it, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter that it's got no floor uh, he said yeah, I'll, I'll sort you out with this, this son <laughs> so he said uh, come on I'll, I'll take you out for a, for a drive so it wouldn't start, so they got some guys to push it, and it sort of, like, struggled into life. And we're going down the road up towards Wembley High Street, and I noticed that he's got both hands on the left side of the wheel, tugging really hard, <laughs> because it was pulling so badly to the right. Uh, and, and, and when he braked, it was it just shot even further over to... Didn't matter. Didn't matter at all. We got back somehow and uh, he says what do you think I said thank you very much Mr Slim that'll, that'll do nicely and he said okay let's sort you out and tax then you could do six pounds for I think it was six months tax or four months tax so I said I'll sort you out with that we can do that and I said insurance he said okay and I remember to this day he opened a drawer and bought out an insurance pad and just wrote the number plate down, my name and all the various bits and pieces, tore it off and gave it to me. And uh, and I said, oh, th- thanks very much, Mr. Stem. He said, whatever you do, don't try and claim. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a company that on the top was written Cloverleaf, and it was based in Southall, and the guy who owned it all ended up in prison because... The insurance was useless. I mean, that was a, but, but every one of the kids in the area, we all had these cloverleaf insurance things. So I drove this home, and it was just a death trap in every respect. It was a total death trap. Uh, I mean, it, the back axle whined so badly you couldn't hear. Uh, it did about 35 mile an hour flat out. Uh, it pulled monstrously to the left, uh, the brakes basically didn't work. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't afford it. had four odd tyres on it. Not only odd makes, but odd sizes. <laughs> I think. But you know what? It, it doesn't exist anymore because I've checked out the registration. But if it still existed, I'd buy it. I'd have it back. Mm. So if I could take it with me in the time capsule, uh, I wouldn't be able to go very far. Uh, but it was just something so special. The first and best car I ever owned. Brilliant. You can just sit in it and hold the wheel, hold oh. the steering wheel. Oh, yeah. And pull. <laughs> I picked up a, 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 a friend of mine's mum, Mrs Holden, her name was, at Sudbury Hill. I was driving down 
come to Summer Hill, going down Cavendish Avenue, around toward Ed Gardens, where I used to live. And at the top, there was Mrs. Holden, struggling with two shopping bags. This is way before days of supermarkets. So I could go up, pull it out. Hello, Mrs. Holden. Hello, Richard, she said. I said, can I give you a lift home? She said, that would be so kind, because these bags are really heavy. So she pulled the seat forward and just put the bags down, put the seat and got it in the front. And it was only when we got to Hallsbury Road, where she lived, and she said, you're so kind, thank you, and pulled the seat forward, that I realised, I've got no floor in the back. <laughs> she just put the bag straight down onto the road. No! So she went, where's my shopping? <laughs> I went, so we drove back to, up to Sudbury Hill, and there were the bags in the road, and of course everybody ran over them, all over the place. And she went round and had a go at my dad, you know, that car's a death trap. You should not be allowed in it and all that. And I just go, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Holden. We pay you for the for your shopping and things like that. But um, yeah, she never accepted a lift from me again. But uh, <laughs> oh, I had so many adventures in that car. And first girlfriends in the car. It was real, pretty cool to have a have a car. You know, no longer was it on your bicycle to go. I mean. But that was a that was an interesting thing. That was the reason in the end that the car had to go because girls at that time cars were quite prestigious, but they tended to like ones that had got four doors, had a floor <laughs> that stopped and went in the direction that the steering wheel was was going. So they are picky, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So you ended up losing you ended up losing your girlfriend not because of anything other than he's got a better car than you've got. Yeah. So that was... He's uh, got a Cortina. Yeah. Oh, that was a, so, so I bought a... Uh, saved up and bought a Vauxhall Victor Estate. Because mm. I discovered estate cars had many advantages. <laughs> <laughs> I'd buy that one back as well. I remember it was VRK. But I can't remember the numbers, but that's gone. That, because uh, that was crushed. Because it just rotted and rusted. When, when the MOT came out, all the great cars left the road. It's terrifying. There you go. Oh, well, that's a brilliant thing to put in there. Yeah, that, that would definitely go in. The next thing I would take, I would have to take something musical, but, but I wouldn't take the piano that I learned to play, which I've still got, because that would be a bit too obvious. But what I would take would be my first electronic keyboard which was a Hona Pianet, uh, which was the cheapest made little electric piano that you could get. Um, very cheaply made. I bought it uh, for £30 uh, in, what would it be, 1966, 65. My, I'd saved up £15. My dad lent me £15 on the condition that I paid him back from gigs that I was doing. And I bought it from Macari's Music Centre in Wembley. And it had screwing legs. Um, for those of you listening now, I've just made uh, a movement with my hand trying to screw, which is completely ridiculous. It had screwing legs, and one of the threads on one of the legs uh, had had it. And so I used to stick matchsticks in it just to hold it. And provided you didn't thump too hard, it, it was okay. It was all right. And I had a residency with a, with a little trio at the Borough of Brent uh, Social Working Man's and Dustman's Working working Man's Club. 
Uh, great place. I loved it. I loved going there and uh, where everybody sat in the same seats. Mm. Um, I mean, it was just, uh, it was just priceless. And I was very young. I was, what, 16, 17, you know, to be doing it. Uh, and I was far and away the youngest person. I mean, I say youngest, I mean, most of the people in their 40s, 50s and whatever. Uh, and the band that I was in, the, the a strange lineup, piano, clarinet and drums, which was... Uh, <laughs> You know, not one I would recommend. But the, uh, and I had my electric piano, the clarinet player, a lovely guy called Terry Beresford. Um, sadly, no longer with us, but he, he was, a, he was a nice guy. The drummer, Bill Farman, was the local rat catcher for Harrow. And he used to arrive in his van with the drums in the back and all these cages with rats in them. <laughs> and he stunk of rats. And, uh, and he was, he was so miserable, Bill. He was a lovely, lovely fella. And the interesting thing was that, um, uh, like a lot of working men's clubs there's a great way to learn things great way to learn songs because they used to have the 15 minutes of people coming up and singing and the people used to come and sing and my dad who was a great piano player said look what you do son if you don't know the piece he said just bluff your way through you look confident if you look confident everybody out there will think that you're right and they're wrong <laughs> he said and some of them will try and be clever and say I do this in B flat he said, they wouldn't know a flat if you saw it. He said, just always bust everything in C. You can't go wrong. They won't know. And I went, okay, Dad. And he said, if it's a piece that you don't know and you've bluffed your way through it, he said, make a note of it. Then on your way to school in the morning, stop at Squires in Ealing, which was the big music shop. He said, order the music. He said, I'll treat you. He said, and you'll find over a year, you'll build up every standard that you will ever need to know when you're going about, so, okay, that's what I, that's what I did, um, including some very weird ones. There was a guy who came and said, "I want to sing." Where do flies go in the winter time? <laughs> and I went, oh. anyway, so I just started sort of like busking away. Uh, I went, "Where do flies go?" I thought this is ridiculous. And I went to Squires and in the one, and I said, um, "Here's what, uh, where do flies go in the winter time?" And he uh, there was no computers back there. The big book, the big Boozy and Hawks book, and everything. And he went, no, no, sorry. I thought, yeah, you're having me on. So the following week, when I went back, he, he said, uh, he said, Richard, come over. I said, he said, you won't believe what I've found in a book. And he got this old book, and it was Where Do Flies Go in the Winter Time? Wow. It's an old musical song from the 1890s. <laughs> I, I can't believe it. Anyway, that's by the way. But I had my little electric piano, my little Hona Pianet. And there was one particular evening where one of the guys, I think his name was Ernie Orris, he'd brought along, uh, it was a relation. It was a, uh, a lady uh, who was probably in her very early 20s, who was uh, very pretty, fully miniskirted up, and had uh, a Helen Shapiro big booth on air star which was I mean it was it was taller than she was, it was <laughs> and uh, he brought her over to, to see the man she came over to me and she, she said uh, I'm going to sing tonight and I went alright I'm a hormonal 17 year old <laughs> I went yeah great I'd be, be really good she said I'm going to sing kiss me honey honey kiss me I went all right. She said, do you know? I said, yeah. She said, oh, good. 
She said, and uh, what I'll do, she said, I will flirt with you while I'm singing it. Oh, right. <laughs> thinking, I'm, oh, four. yeah, okay. Sorry for that. Uh, I mean, they did the bingo and then all the usual crap and we did the dancing. So the first time I'm looking, going, come out to the singing in a minute, come out to where they go. Normally you didn't, you know, it's the last thing you wanted. And she was introduced and up she came. And, <laughs> and she sort of came over and she walked up, blew me a kiss and all the locals all around go, whoa, you know, and I thought, oh, this is oh, outrageous kind of, you know. so I'll sit there and um, we played it and there's a, it's going, honey, when it's time to stop, but honey, honey, and then she bashed on top of the piano, don't stop, and the, and the leg went, and I went, <laughs> so I've now got my knee underneath it, holding it, holding it up at the side, and I'm and I so, and then it, and then, of course, there's another verse, and it comes again, honey, honey, don't stop. And this time, a leg that was fine before, that goes. So I've now got two knees underneath, holding this little piano up, comes to the last verse, and she gives it an all to my knee, honey, honey, and it collapses. And it falls, because she's, she's gone down with it. So she's now got legs akimbo in the air, the skirt right now, and I think, the, 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 she struggles up to her, Buffon's gone now, it's just bits are hanging. Mascara's gone, she's an absolute mess. And she just turned and glared at me and stormed off down the hall. I mean, I mean people are laughing or whatever. And I'm and I'm thinking, she's completely wrecked my piano, my little piano. And um, and Terry Burris was said, Yeah. And if you're expecting a nice night, I don't think you're going to get it. <laughs> so that was a that was a total disaster. And of course, the the dear old Pianet, which I'd love to have back, has the association with the Ford Anglia Hundred E, because that's how I got to to drive to you know to do my work at the uh, Borough of Brent uh, Working Men's and Dustman Social Club. So the two together have really not been great for my love life when I think about <laughs> it, looking back. But I'd love to have that Pianet back. You can't find them anymore because they were a bit of a disaster. Because yeah, they were electric, but they weren't mechanical as well, so they used to fall apart. But I'd love to have that because I like things that you can look at and they remind you of things that, yeah. that, re- that reminisce. Well, I think that's sort of the idea here, actually, is why we put them in the time yeah. capsule for you. And you look at them and you go, all those stories come flooding back. Yeah. I mean, the other, the, other, the, the, the other one I'd like, which is a, a big one, and it's something that I actually tried to buy, and, and it's 24 Lawn Road, Exmouth in Devon. My mum and dad didn't have any money, and so it was, it was a B&B at the best for our two weeks in Devon. Every year, 24 Lawn Road, Mrs. Clark's, Exmouth, Devon, uh, which was great when you're young. As you get a bit older, it's not quite so much fun to go away with your parents. But uh, went down there, and I loved this up. Mrs. Clark was fabulous, a lovely lady. They had a big sheepdog, and uh, I had a little room at the back. Mum and Dad had a room at the, at the front. Uh, there was no running water or anything upstairs. It was the old jugs and, and that kind of thing. And she used to cook breakfast, and you had an evening meal. Mm. Uh, and I remember my dad saying it was £2.50 a week for the lot of us all in and he had an old Morris 8 uh, a DNK 784 called Dinky Doo we used to call it and it was 180 miles 
from our house in North Holt to Mrs. Clark's. And it used to take about 16 hours to get there because uh, there were no, no motorways and car only did about a three mile an hour though. But it was just fantastic. It was like going to another world. And when we arrived for the very first time, uh, Mrs. Clark came out and she had this Devon accent. Now, I'd never heard accents before, anything like that. And she went to my went to my mother and said, what is the little boy like then? What does he like to eat? And I thought, this is a different world. What is, what is going on? And my mum said, oh, he, um, he's, a, he's a bit fussy. And she went, well, does he like chips? And my mum said, yeah, chips are all right with chips. All right then. And she said, what about puddings? And my mum said, well, he likes treacle pudding. She said, I will make him a treacle pudding. So that night when we came for dinner, we had uh, something with chips. I ate the chips, left the something. <laughs> and then she came in with a treacle pudding and she put it on the table and she went, I hope you enjoy it. And she went, oh, thank you, thank you. And my mum got the knife and it basically bent the knife when she tried to cut it. <laughs> it was just rock hard. It was like concrete. And uh, I said, said to my dad, Cyril, you have a go at this. And he's like stabbing it and trying to get bits. It was absolutely impossible. So uh, I said, what are we going to do? Mum said, we don't want to upset her. She's made it especially. So mum put it in her handbag. <laughs> and uh, and we left. And, and, we, and we, would, we would go down for a walk down to the seafront and down to Orkham Point after we'd had something to eat. Uh, and we took the... There's this uh, this brick of uh, of uh, some treacle pudding, and we stopped at there was a little hotel called, called Park Hotel on the corner of Lawn Road, and there was a big brick wall, and it went over the brick wall, and that's where it went. I didn't think anything about it until the next night when Mrs. Clark, after we had something and chips, and I'd eaten the chips but not the something, and she came back and said. As you all cleared your plates and enjoyed the treacle pudding so much, I've made you another one. <laughs> we had treacle pudding every night, every single night, for about 14 years that we went to stay there. And every single night after it went over the wall of the Park Hotel. <laughs> so the Park Hotel must have had, it must have, the ground must have raised about at least a foot over the over the years. So I don't want to take the trickle tart with me, but I'd love to take twenty four Lawn Road because they were some of the most magical holidays that I that I ever had. Uh. It was absolutely magical and wonderful. And I just loved it. You know, I I ended up I tried to buy twenty four Lawn Road. I actually tried to buy it. Um it wasn't up for sale. I just tried to buy it. <laughs> and and people wouldn't wouldn't sell it. I'm glad I didn't because it's never the same. No. It was a, a bit of a silly thing to do at the time. But I did buy a, a house in the area, once at Woodbury Salton, which is not far away. And I used to go and visit it and just drive by it. And that's really all you should do. Yeah. Drive by and go, I remember that. Yeah. Because it's not never quite what you, you know, what you think it is. No. We had a lot of holidays on Hayling Island when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. And then I did a job in, in Southampton recently, so I drove round to Hayling Island yeah. and toured around. The inner part of Hailing Island is uh, exactly the same. It's yeah. a lovely countryside, but uh, I couldn't find any of the um, caravan sites or campsites. No, they, they, they've all gone. All gone. Oh, yes. those childhood holidays were just absolutely 
priceless. We're going to take a short break here for some adverts, or possibly a short pause. We'll be back in a moment. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Was it a pause? Ah, oh, well. Let's get back to Rick Wakeman and hear what his next item is for the time capsule. Okay. Next thing I would take, again, this is memories of uh, childhood, is the Rolls double washing machine and spin dryer. When I was a kid, we had an old boiler which uh, used to heat up the water and mum had a, a stick thing, and that's what you did the washing in in the old, in the old boiler and uh, it stunk to high heaven it, I mean I still to this day not, not keen on the smell of uh, clothes being washed but it used to it used to make a real mess of it. and then a guy called I think his name was Bloom John Bloom he started off he invented the or designed the Rolls Razor which was a razor that was much cheaper than all razors you could buy. And, and then he built the Rolls washing machine. Now, washing machines were expensive. White goods were really expensive. This was like a quarter the price of, of anything else on the market. So it was the first affordable washing machine and spin drive, twin tub, they used to call it. Mm. Uh, that, uh, so you'd wash on one side and then you'd take the stuff out. Put it in the spin. And suddenly it was affordable for... For most most families, I remember it arriving. This uh, my dad was so proud of this this twin tub rolls washing machine, and we put it in the kitchen. Mum did the washing, and Dad was going marvelous, marvelous British built. He was very British. Never buy anything foreign. Oh, it's wonderful! Look at it. Absolutely. Look at that. look at this, Mildred. Look how clean this is all coming out. You, know, you can see any dips it's soaking wet <laughs> and then put it in the spin dryer put the spin dryer on and it took off <laughs> this thing absolutely took off down there, our little kitchen with dad hanging on to it for grim death 
And he shouted to me, sit on it, sit on it, son. So I'm now sitting on it where it's bouncing up and down. Uh, it, it, was just, it was like a giant vibrator. <laughs> and my mum going, what, what's happening, Sue? And there was water pouring out of it all over the place under mum. And then finally it sort of came to a stop and, uh, and pulled the washing out. It wasn't really much drier than when it went in. But my dad wouldn't have it it was faulty. And it turned out that it wasn't faulty. They all did it. Uh, and what the recommendation was that you put bricks inside it, <laughs> which is still something common to this day inside tumble drives. Mm. So we filled it full of bricks, Dad did. But whenever the washing was done, it was the same routine. It was uh, sit on it, son. So I'd sit on it. Dad would hang on for grim death. And it, took a, it, it was quicker than my Ford Anglia. <laughs> it, it was quite unbelievable. But the memories of something that you did with your mum and dad yeah. that was so, so different, that was so special. So that, I'd just like to take that because that will leave, you know, I lost both mum and dad when I was 29. I lost my dad and I lost them about 25 years ago, 30 mm. years ago. And just the mere fact of that would lead me off to remember so many other wonderful things about yes. about my mum and dad. What did they do, your mum and dad? My dad, uh, it's quite, my dad's story, I could, it literally would take me two hours to tell you. It's a remarkable <laughs> story. Um, it is a re- absolutely remarkable story. He, uh, he was a great piano player. My mum and dad used to have a concert party called the Wake Ears. Dad played the piano. Uncle Laurie was the comedian. Uncle Stan played the banjo, did George Formby impersonations. My mum, Auntie Esther, and Aunt Olive uh, were the three, uh, I say, Andrews sisters. <laughs> I had to take Andrews before they sang. And it was more like uh, <laughs> uh, they used to sing a song called The Kipper, The Haddock, and The Bloater. And again, I've searched for the music. Well, I've never managed to find it. Yeah, The Kipper, The Haddock, and The Bloater. And they used to relive their glory days um, after the after the war a meeting at my mum and dad's little house and they go into the front room where the piano was and they they redo their show and i was what this is like 1952 and i was age of three i used to climb down the stairs sit at the bottom step and just li- listen in raptures to all of this but of course concert parties and all that kind of like a, a variety changed drastically after the war and and dad got a job as an office boy at a huge building concern called Nichols and Clarks who still exist but it's a huge firm and it's one of those firms which you in the old days you went somewhere and you stayed there for life mm. and so he started as T-boy office boy and when he died in 1980 um, he was a director wow he worked his way all the way through he worked hard he loved the company. He was very proud of the company. Um, I still have a big association with them. Um, and uh, go and see them. They've got branches all over the country. And it's an, it's still what I would call a family business. It's massive. Um, but when you go there, you get the personal service. It's still one of those. Not many of those places left. So um, he was very proud of working for, for Nichols and Clarks. And... Uh, I'm very proud to still have an association with it through, through my dad. Uh, so that's basically what they did. Um, but my dad's stories of, of what he did, uh, especially during the war years, when I was just quite phenomenal. I, I, I could what work. service was he in? He was in the army. Uh, 
But um, there was a whole period where he was, I was told he was in in hospital because uh, he was on the Normandy beaches. But when I got all, finally got hold of all of his records, I found out that that wasn't true at all. He was in Italy. Uh, and and most of the of the knowledge that I've got about what was going on, I actually got from hierarchy friends in Italy, not from uh, over here. It was an amazing life. I could, I literally could write a book about my dad. You but, should. Uh, but the trouble is, the only person be interested is me, really, and my <laughs> grandchildren. But it is a fantastic story. It's a fantastic. I'm not sure because those the, the war in Italy is almost a forgotten war, isn't it? Because it was, yeah, it was people felt that. I think Winston Churchill was quite keen for that to be the main war. Yeah. He didn't want to go into Normandy, I don't think. No, he didn't. And But it was used as a diversion. Maybe. It was. But it was brutal. It, it was It was quite unbelievable. Dad never talked about it, and I never realised why he didn't want to talk about it at all until I got hold of all of the records. Mm. And you go, this doesn't add up. This doesn't add up. You know, and, uh, but he, he was he'd long since gone by the time I got all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's uh, so that's that. So that's my that's. And, and yet he was a piano player. So yeah. do you had music around you all the time when you were a kid? Is that oh that yeah? Started it was it? everywhere. Yeah, music was absolutely everywhere. And he um, during the war years he'd be pulled off of fighting to go and uh, depth for a, a band that had come in from Ensor. Like so, he'd, he he depth and played uh, for Alan Breeze from Billy Cotton, uh, Harry Seacombe who was lovely to me one day. I played in many years later, not, as, uh, after Dad had passed away, I played in the Harry Seacombe uh, Charity Golf Tournament. And I'd never met Harry before, and I went along. And uh, uh, what a lovely guy he was. The only time I ever met him, he was, and he was very sociable with everybody all around. And, and uh, he came in and sort of said, you're a piano player, I hear. And I said, uh, yes, 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 Mr. Seagull. He said, no, call, call me Harry. I said, oh, thank you. And uh, I said, you won't remember, but um, um, my dad played for you. And he did the real brilliant thing. He said, really well? I said, during the war, when you went out to entertain troops and things sometimes, on a couple of occasions... He came and uh, and accompanied you on on the piano, and he said his name, and I said uh, Wakeman. He said, "Oh, he said I had lots of different piano players that would would come out," and he said, "What was his first name?" And I said, "Cyril," and he went, "Now that rings a bell." Now I knew that he didn't, mm. but I thought, "What a kind thing to to say!" Because I was very proud that my dad went out and did all those things. And I thought, that is, that is so, I must learn from that. Yes. I must really learn from that. He said, it does, it does ring a bell. And um, smiled and left it at that. Lovely. And I was on top of the world. Mm. I knew it wasn't true. That it, well, who knows, it might have been, but I knew it wasn't, probably was not, was not true. But I, I thought, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's really good. I like you. I like you a lot, Mr. Seagram. And were you a big goons fan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got to meet and um, be quite friendly with a Spike Milligan, who I met through Eric Sykes because Eric was one of my closest friends. Mm. Uh, loved Eric to bits, and Spike <laughs> always used to call me. He would never call me by my name. 
they'd always call me the piano player who refuses to play bum notes. <laughs> and I said, Spike, I do play bum notes. No, you don't. You're the piano player who refuses to play bum notes. And, uh, yeah, huge Goons fan. And, well, as you know, a huge comedy fan all the way around. And I met him through Eric, because Eric and I used to go and have lunches up in Queensway where his offices were, because he and Spike had offices up there together, I would say. And, uh, I used to go, uh, I used to get invited by Eric to go for lunch at a Chinese restaurant in Queensway with him and uh, Dennis Norton. Dennis, they were in the army together. Uh, and uh, we used to sit and, and have lunch. And it was absolutely brilliant because Eric said, we're inviting you because we've not exactly run out of things to talk about when we meet every week but you will probably ask us things that will set us off remembering things that we wouldn't normally remember so we used to go to this Chinese restaurant and it was one of those that had the revolving wheel in the middle they pulled the food on now Eric of course yeah (laughs) Eric of course blind as a bat his hearing weren't that good but he couldn't see anything and they used didn't they have hearing aids in his he had yeah his glasses had vibrators in it so he could hear the vibrations and things and one, cause one of the things he used to love to do if he met people for the first time, he'd just put his eye, I'd just scratch his eye from inside, you know, putting it through the, where there's no lens. Um, <laughs> it was great, Eric. But, um, uh, they, they knew him in this Chinese restaurant. This is in the eighties. And, uh, they'd bring the menus over, even though he couldn't read them. And he'd deliberately hold it upside down and go, yeah, we'll have all that. And they used to bring all this food on their right. And cause Eric couldn't see very well that, uh, it was, it was a chaos. There was food everywhere by the time we, <laughs> we finished. But I, I'd just say things that, uh, things like um, Hattie Jakes was, was she was loving. And then they'd go off and tell stories about Hattie. And as Eric said, it, things that we wouldn't normally say to each other because we, we know, but it's... And they'd sort of... And I'd say, like John Burns, or Richard Wattis, mm. or, uh, or the time when Sellers was in a Sykes and things like that. And it was fantastic because they... Uh, I used to come away with so much knowledge, so much knowledge about people in the business because I do love the business and I I don't understand anybody who's in it who isn't interested in the history of how we ended up where where we are. You know, I I find it bewildering sometimes that you can meet people in the business that have got no idea about an area of what they're in that happened 20 years ago, mm. let alone 40, 50, 60 years ago. So, uh, you know, I used to, I used to relish those uh, and learn so much about so many people. I mean, I learned, for example, that uh, Eric was the last person that Tony Hancock called from the airport before he flew to Australia. Really? And uh, Eric always said was, he, he often wondered whether... Hancock had actually called him to try and he wanted something to say, don't go. Mm. But he said he was such a manic depressive in so many ways. And and he said he often thought about, thought about that. I I mean, quite amazing. I mean, I, these, these people I I absolutely adore because they are true ambassadors for the entertainment industry. And I just love them to bits. They're, They're quite special. People with that sort of longevity, they themselves clearly loved the business. Oh, absolutely adored it. They absolutely adored it. Um, 
Am I allowed to take a person into the into my? You are allowed to take a person in, yeah. Although the rules really are that the fifth thing is supposed to be something that you're glad to get rid of. Although my son will kill me if I don't ask <laughs> you to. If I don't ask you to tell about recording life on Mars, oh, like, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about that in a little bit. Yeah. You tell me about that in a minute because okay. not necessarily for us to put in this, but he just wants to hear about it. That's what it is. Oh, like, no, but no, you must be sick to death. No, this. not at all. I don't get. I, I'm. Uh, well, like you said earlier, it's the why, David would you Cro- be, why would you not be proud of it? Absolutely, it's the David Croft syndrome. Yeah. Uh, be proud of what you've done. Other you know, something to get rid of yeah, without getting into serious trouble. Um, <laughs> You see, the interesting thing is, I'm sure I will think of something in a moment, but it is that thing that you have highs and lows in your life, you have good things, you have bad things. But if you change one thing, then your whole life changes. Mm. And we wouldn't be sitting here now chatting away. Yes, the bad does in fact create the good. There's a few things that I can think of, including some people. (laughs) Um, But that's that's a bit... That's... that's, uh, Absolutely get me into trouble. Um, I would... No, that would get me into serious trouble. <laughs> uh, OK, I shall, I shall come up with something. That's all right, there's no rush. Well, go on, tell me about tell me about Bowie then. I'll tell you about Bowie first, and that'll, and that'll make me think. Um, I met David first in 1968 with a uh, producer called Gus Dudgeon and also with Tony Visconti. And... Uh, Cut a long story short, I did Space Oddity with him, then a few other tracks like Wild Eye Boy from Free Cloud and whatever. And he said to me, I'd like you to do some piano for me. I said, okay, I'd love to. Uh, so I went round to his house. He had a house in Beckenham in Kent. And, uh, where he was from. Where he was from, yeah. Um, Haddon Hall, which I thought he owned, but it was rented. And tragically, it got demolished recently, which I cannot believe because if Beckenham had had an ounce of common sense they'd have purchased the place <laughs> oh, for turned sake. it into a Bowie museum they would have had hundreds of thousands of visitors from around the world every year but no they knocked it down uh, uh, that that I just find bewildering people go and stand outside of his old school don't they yeah They're Ravens were yeah Ravens were, yeah. but it's you know, it's it's the sort of thing you can imagine that some councilman, yeah, well, knock it down. Yes, it has to go. Yeah, it's a bit of an eyesore, which it wasn't. It was a great place. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll build a block of flats on that. That's been quite a good idea. I mean, no forward thinking whatsoever. Um, who who is it? This Mister Bowie. He invented the knife, didn't he? You know that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so I went round to his house, and he had a minstrels gallery in this house. The grand piano there, and I didn't have a grand piano. Oh, I had a. Um, a little piano, which was 1917, uh, a little terrace house in West Harrow. Uh, so to go to this magnificent house was just quite amazing. And he just said, I'm going to play you some songs, which I'm going to put on the new album, but I want them to be very piano-orientated. I said, OK. And he put some manuscript and paper. He said, can you make some notes? I said, yeah. So he, he was playing these songs, one after the other, just great songs. And I said, David, these are magnificent. And then he played Life on Mars. And I can remember just sitting back on the piano stool and going, that will live forever. Mm. And he said, you made some notes? I said, yeah. He said, uh, play it for me as a piano piece. And I said, well, how do you want me to play it? And he said, you know how I want you to play it. I said, well, I don't, that's why I'm asking you. He said, no, no, you know how I want you to play it, play it. 
oh. so I played it and it finished he went that's how I want you to play it hmm. and uh, he gave me a bit of advice then which has stuck with me ever since and I've used it ever since he said when you come to do your own albums and things Rick he said always get hold of musicians who understand what you want because if they don't understand what you want you'll never get what you want he said if you've got to tell them everything he said yeah give direction but if you've got to tell them everything then they're the wrong musicians to use I went, oh, okay. And I did. And I've used that, had that advice ever, ever since. And we did Life on Mars, and he gave me total freedom to play what I liked uh, on it. And I can remember going back to my, my wife at the time, Ros, and she said, uh, how was it? I said, I have just played on, and been proud to have played on an album uh, that is going to live probably long after I'm dead. Mm. And I said, and there's one track on there, Life on Mars, I said, which, I said, it's going to become one of the most iconic songs ever. I said, David has that unique knack of writing popular music that tells a story. And I said, it's an absolute, absolute uh, gift that he's, that he's got. Mm. And, and, and I'm not just saying that in retrospect, because I said it at the, at the time. Uh, and it's so very, very proud to, and out of all of the sessions, probably that and Cat Stevens' Morning Has Broken, I suppose, another one. Those are the ones that really stand out. Uh, They're sort of defined by your piano part, though, those songs. But yeah. Life on Mars is a great song. It is, it's a great song. You, you can only do, you can only, it's a bit like films, really. You know, people say, oh, he was fantastic in that film or fantastic in that TV documentary or whatever, that TV drama. You can only be that if the, if the product is good. Mm-hmm. If it's a good play or it's a good, good film, then you're going to... There there's been a lot of, shall we say, good acting in films that have died on their backside and TV programmes that have disappeared. Mm. Uh, so the, it, it's got to be everything. The product's got to be good as well. And, and David had that, that knack. And we remained friends. In fact, we were neighbours in Switzerland for four years. Uh, and we used to put the world to rights at various things. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, so... Um, Over the years, uh, people I know who've, who've known him have told me the really nicest things about him, saying oh. that he was such a sweet man. There's an actor called Steve Steen, who's an improviser. Okay. He's in the Comedy Store Players with Paul okay. Merton and those sort of things. Oh, right. He's a brilliant improviser. And when he was a young lad living in Beckenham, yeah. he went to a folk club and yeah. he would go up on stage and perform. And um, he said that him and his mate went up, they, they practiced a few songs and they went up yeah. and played. wasn't going very well. Suddenly the whole place lit up and everybody was going, oh, brilliant. And there was a tambourine being played behind and he turned around and it was David. David, yeah. Well, of course, he's I mean, he was number one with um, Space. Space Odyssey, Space Odyssey. Yeah, which I did with, that was the first thing I did with him, wow. 1969. But of course, he started life as a folk singer, Davy Jones, his name. Mm-hmm. And he only changed it because of the monkeys, the actor. Yeah, because otherwise it could be too Davy, Davy Jones, so he changed it to, to, to David Bowie. But uh, now he, he was a good man, he was a kind man, did not suffer fools gladly at all, hated management. Hated bosses of record companies and people who were, he, he really, you know, he thought they had no right to tell any musician what they should be doing. And uh, I learned a lot from David over, over the years, and, and in a strange way, I, I, 
I, I say I miss him, but to a lot of extent, he's still here because he's left so many great legacies and stuff. Mm. You know, he, it's uh, you know, it's important. I mean, I had the opportunity to, to either join Spiders from Mars or join Yes, and I chose Yes. <laughs> and uh, and we talked about it a lot, and he said, absolutely the right decision. Yeah. He said, because you would have ended up... He said, uh, I change the bands all the time. He said, remember what I told you about, you know, pick the musicians you want for the for the music. You, you pick the one who will understand what you were doing. He said, that's why I change my bands all the time. He said, so, so absolutely you made the, the right decision. He was a he was a, a good lad. I I liked David a lot. I really did, and um, I would have liked to have seen him perhaps later in, in in life, shortly before he became ill. I did know he was ill. I was told, but I was told to keep it very quiet. Mm. Uh, and so you do. So it was even when he died, it was still a shock. It was still a stunning shock, even though. I was sort of expecting it because I had heard, you know, that they'd gone downhill drastically. But uh, there you go. He was. Uh, I mean, his legacy will live on. He'll. He'll. Be, he will be in many respects in a hundred years' time as famous as and as important as probably the Beatles because his contribution was just phenomenal. Um, Something definitely not to take. Yeah, you, this is something you've got to lock away in there. This is it's gone from your gone, life. Gone forever from my life. And uh, it is hamburgers. <laughs> McDonald's, call it what you like, or mm. Burger King, I don't care. Um, I've had the fries and the chips in those places, but I have, I have never in my life bought a burger. I've had them when they've been butchers made to use on a barbecue you take home. But Wimpy's, uh, McDonald's, Burger King, and so, all, those, all those kind of Wendy's and all those, no, never. And it stems from 1971, November, in New York, uh, when McDonald's was, it was big, but it was not like it is, is now. I mean, it was, it was, it was huge, but they had quite small outlets. There wasn't the drive-throughs and all that kind of thing. And we drove into New York, I was with, with Yes, and it was, oh, about two in the morning. And uh, we were all hungry. I mean, we weren't earning very much. It was early days and things. And, and we, we went into this little sort of hotel where we were staying, uh, which reminded me a little bit of uh, rising damp, you know, of Leonard uh, <laughs> Rossiter's. But it was it was right. And... Uh, and one of the lads said, well, I'm going out to get a get a burger. So I said, what, it's two o'clock in the morning? Yeah, you'll get it in New York. Well, no, this is when you were thinking of, of England at the time, and when everything, you know, it, it shut, you couldn't even get a sandwich at four o'clock in the afternoon. I went, it was, I went wow, wow, wow. So we went off, and I was with two of the crew, and we came to like a burger bar that was being served out of a sort of a shop window kind of thing. And there was a guy there, and he was making them. You know, he was slapping the old meat patties on the things. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and there was a little old lady in, in front, real New York, and I can't do the accents and things. And he went, way one. She went, burger. Uh, and that's when I sort of first realised that uh, the, 
please and thank you is not that popular in the New York sort of language. <laughs> and I saw, and she's just looking around like this, she's really mad, and he slapped this and then he said, and she's not really looking, and then he, and she went, relish, I want relish, and lettuce, and relish, and pickle. <laughs> and he went, oh, slapped the burger up, and she went, and he put a bit of whatever this was, red stuff on and then and she said, I want more than that and turned turn around and, and said to me and that the guy said, they never put enough on and while he's doing that, I watched him as he went oh. and, this, and this chunk of phlegm oh. went in the, and then he slapped the bun on the top and he went, there you go dollar, or whatever it was she paid, and off she went and I stood there and he went, yeah and I went I'm not hungry now. <laughs> and I've never eaten a burger from anywhere ever since. I'm not surprised. Because I, I cannot get that vision out of my... And even worse vision is the fact that she ate it. Oh! You know, it, uh, yeah, more relish. <laughs> so uh, that is something that I would erase and, and make sure that it was nowhere ever. I, I think... No, no, sorry. Oh, I don't blame you. Oh, I'm going to definitely take the hamburgers and yeah. put them in the time capsule. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, forever. <laughs> oh, my God. Rick, thank you so much for being on my time capsule. Excellent. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Rick Wakeman. You can subscribe to this podcast to stream all episodes on Acast or your own favorite podcast provider. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us and write a short review. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the latest about My Time Capsule. You just search at MyTCPod. Or you can follow me at Fenton Stevens on Twitter or at Mike Fenton Stevens on Instagram. My Time Capsule is a cast off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens, and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. Thanks for listening. I know it's not the freakiest show. It's a bit like a walk through a sunken dream, but at least there aren't any sailors fighting in the dance hall. Oh, man. Look at those cavemen go. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.